Learning to deal with change is one of the non-negotiable parts of our lives. Can we agree? That no matter... When I was a little kid, I remember... So I'm weird. My earliest memory is I was two years old. And people can say, what? Let me tell you what happened at my two-year-old birthday party. My aunt thought it'd be nice to hire the person who played, not Carol Spinney, but another big bird, to come to my party, and it terrified me. And I remember crying and screaming underneath the couch. And then... I remember that my aunt thought it would make me feel better to know the big bird wasn't real. So what they did is I went outside my house and I saw a big bird sitting in the back of a pickup truck, not with big bird's head, and it was a person. And now I was even more terrified. (laughs) But I started as a little kid to accept a reality, right? I started to have a worldview. We all have this as children. Can we agree? We start to make sense of the world. We realize things are, they seem very permanent, right? except they're not, because then I go off to school and I go on the bus on the getting ready to go to kindergarten day in Lincoln, Rhode Island, and suddenly everything's different. And this happens when I'm seven, this happens when I'm nine, etc., right? Middle school, high school, college, becoming a parent, etc. Are you with me? Okay. So we realize that change is a non-negotiable part of our life. No matter how comfortable we get with X, is X going to stay the same? It's not, okay? So that's the reality. But when we think of change, the best kind of change we get the opportunity to prepare for. Can we agree that there are certain types of change that are unforeseen? You with me on that? There are certain things that it changes and we're like, I didn't see it coming. You ever have an I didn't see it coming moment? But let's, let's back off from that for a moment. What about that change we do see coming, the arrival of a new baby, right? Those of you who are a parent, you'll remember that time before the baby came. What were those months like? Those months were, okay, so let's think of the, I learned a new phrase during that period, nesting. Did you notice this a thing? Nesting. So, so moms do a thing called nesting where they, they want to get the baby's room all set and they want to make sure that we're, we're painting dinosaurs and we're getting, to, are you with me? Okay. Dads are a little more clueless sometimes, and maybe when mom is preparing, right, so she's preparing for the change, what are we doing? We're acting like nothing's different. Oh, it's not going to be any different. My marriage isn't going to change, right? Dads who who have kids, did our marriage change between before having children and after? Of course not. stayed exactly the same, right? It did not. Okay. But that happens in other things too. Let's move away from new baby. What about a new boss? Don't put your hand up, but who loves your boss? Don't put your hand up. Okay, keep your hand down. Who doesn't love your boss? Don't put your hand up. We can be used to tolerating a boss we don't like. We can be used to loving a boss. In either situation, is our boss permanent? Probably not. And that's something we have to learn. We have to deal with change. So in the best situations with change, there's preparing for an arrival... There's preparing for the change and saying, okay, I got to do whatever I got to do to get there. Then there is receiving the change, and then there's dealing with the new reality. Can we agree that that's the general way that we, whether it's good, bad. Now, yes, there's unforeseen change where we lose the benefit of preparing, and we simply, we're just like, I didn't see this coming, but here I am. What about when we think about changes of family structure, changes of seasons of life? All of us, 
This is one of those ones. There's some days that we say, hey, they're having a sermon and it's not for me. Have, again, don't put your hand up. But have you ever felt this way? Where you're like, oh, they're just preaching for my spouse, right? We all, and we do the night, you're like, honey, are you listening? Are you, get off your phone. Are you listening to the pastor right now? The reality is, is all of us have to deal with change. Let's put our hand. Who here, in here, either online or with us, has had to deal with change in your life? Thank you. Okay. Now, why is that a problem? Does anyone want to say that they love change? Let's be brave. Who here says you love change? I see like two hands. Uh, and then I see some people shaking at me being like, nope, nope, no, one, no one's, no, okay. Here's our problem. Can we agree that whether you think you love change or not, change is uncomfortable? It's, it's uncomfortable, right? Look, look at my friend here. He's like, I... I didn't see this coming. Uh, this, is, this is uncomfortable. So here's, here's our problem. Change is uncomfortable. Now, I don't know about you, but something I like to do for fun is I like to read different research and stats and studies that come out. Anybody else a nerd like that? Yeah, I see, some, see the nerds up there. Uh, this has nothing to do with anything, but I'll give you an example. This is really encouraging. Ready? A Gallup poll from a year ago, it was conducted in April of 2022, and they published in the fall, said that 55% of Americans, this is legit, like you can look this up, 55% of Americans believe that Jesus will return at some point. I was blown away by that. That's another, so I like to read stuff like that. There was a study that's a wonderful study, and it really talked about some common ways that we can receive change negatively. Because who says change is uncomfortable? Everybody agree with me? Okay. Here's one of the ways that we can receive change in an uncomfortable manner, and we can say this is probably the wrong way to do it. I can become very passive. I can just say, oh, uh, yeah, there's a change at work. That's above my pay grade. Oh, you're right. They're telling me to do this, and I don't like it, so here's the phone. Why don't you talk to my manager? There's something in my marriage where it changed and it's a new situation. You're like, I don't know. I have nothing to do with it. Talk to my spouse. You with me? You have a thing with my kids, right? And you're like, I don't know. Talk to the math teacher. That's not a me issue. I'm just here to be dad. The reality is, is that an unhelpful posture for dealing with change is being passive. I say change is pushed on me and I'm, I'm helpless to it. Now, you're going to see in the text, we're going to look at the Palm Sunday triumphal entry passage in a bit. You're going to see that there's a group of people that are going to act like this. We think that they get it right and they don't. Because sometimes when we're acting passive, it can look like we're doing everything right. It can look like I'm on board. You're telling me what to do and I'm doing it, but I have no ownership. Do you ever, do you ever feel like this when we have change and you just say, yeah, I'm on board, but I don't like it and I'm not really on board. I'm just here kind of floating around and you're, it's kind of like a lazy river. Anybody ever go on a lazy river? You know where you float on the lazy river and you go down there and you're not really taking ownership. You're just on the lazy river and we can feel like that with change. Now here's another one. Being a stuck opposer. There's a lot of different ways to look at this one. I like this phrase, being a stuck opposer. That means I'm stuck opposing standing against it. My default position is I push it back against change. Oh, change comes at my workplace? What can we do to stop this? Oh, change comes in my living situation? 
What are our options? We gotta stop this right now. We cannot accept this. This is, I will not tolerate, and that's my position. The problem is, is if I just default to not being on board with change, what ends up happening? I'm miserable. Can we agree? If, if no matter what the change, good, bad, and different, no matter what, I'm upset, what's the issue? I'm upset. If I'm upset when good change happens, or bad change happens, or medium change happens, or change in my marriage, or change in my workplace, or change in my family, or change on my baseball team. I was talking to a dear friend yesterday who was very frustrated about some of the changes MLB made for rules. But the reality is, is if I'm always stuck opposing, I'm just miserable. And there's one more, controlling. Now this is one that I think a lot of us fall into. I try to stabilize the change. I say, yep, change is happening in my marriage, in my living situation, in my workplace. But I'm a pretty important guy, so I can shape that change, right? I can really, I can really grab hold of that, and I can, I can control the narrative, and I can keep us going a certain way. What's the problem? I cannot control people, places, or things. I really can't. Now, there are certain times where I have some ability to have positive influence, but here's the thing. As we're receiving change, the way we deal with change is going to be one of the defining ways people see us as Christians. If I am a person who is always trying to control everything, what are my non-Christian friends going to assume about Christians? They're going to assume Christians are always trying to control things, that that's part of the Christian faith, that, oh, David loves Jesus, also, he's always controlling. Therefore, Christians are always controlling. And so what I caution us to say is as we're dealing, yes, change is constant and change is uncomfortable, but if we are always controlling or passive or opposing, sometimes you and I are going to be the only Bible someone will read. And so that means that they will generalize the Christian experience based on me doing this. Now, that takes us to Palm Sunday. Why do we celebrate Palm Sunday every year? If you notice, there's four in this church, there's four things in the Bible that we always celebrate no matter what. Let's see if we can list them. There's the birth of Jesus, we call that Christmas. There's the resurrection of Jesus, we call that Easter, thank you. There's the birth of the church and for my Levitical scholars. Where are my Levitical scholars at who are doing the Bible through the Bible podcast, thank you, right? The Through the Bible podcast that we've been doing, the reading plan as we're going through. We love Leviticus and the law of Moses because we know that Pentecost is not only the birth of the church, Holy Spirit coming down, but also the giving of the law to Moses. And the fourth one is Palm Sunday. Why does Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, matter so much? First of all, what is it? You can say, David, I'm hearing this phrase. I have no idea. What does that mean? Okay, you'll see in the text... It's the major shift from the ministry of Jesus to the passion of Jesus, from Jesus here teaching and leading and healing and giving us various um, parables and giving us these various ways to live our lives and showing people how to live and working with people to suddenly we have Jesus in Messiah mode and now it starts here, Jesus is going to enter the city and everything's going to shift. This is the big shift in the gospel story. And now sometimes, maybe you will say you've dealt with a lot of change. Does anyone ever here feel like you're dealing with a lot of change right now? Okay. I'm going to tell you 
I looked through the entire Bible this week just very quickly. I outlined it. It took me about an hour and a half to do a little activity where I took every story in the Bible and I outlined it really quick. And I looked, and I looked for where there was the most change. And there is more change in this two-month period starting right here than anywhere else in the Bible, and I'll tell you, than anywhere else in your life. There's six big shifts that happen and six new realities. Boom, 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 boom in two months. Watch this. Jesus is in ministry mode. The disciples, the people with him, are there seeing Jesus teach, Jesus serve, Jesus heal, and that's all happening. But suddenly, boom, we have this event, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, leading to the passion. This is a new moment where there's a new reality. Jesus is now doing something here, and everybody's, you're going to see, they're going to have a hard time adjusting. But then very quickly, what happens Jesus is dead. We don't like talking about that, but we need to be honest. There's a period where Jesus is dead. There's a silent period. That is a new reality. The disciples and everybody have to come to terms with Jesus is dead. And you can say, oh, they, they lived in hope of resurrection. I don't know. All we know is that Jesus was dead and they've all fleed. Now Jesus is risen and we have this whole period where we have these resurrection periods. And if you read some of the stories they're a little different. The people don't always get Jesus. They're going into some of their old cycles and their old habits. And, and then there's these various interactions, like we have this road to Emmaus interaction. And then as soon as they start to accept that Jesus is resurrected, what happens? He ascends. Jesus is gone again. And he says, hey, I'm going to do one more change. And we've had five changes in not even two months. And I imagine the disciples and everybody are like, Jesus, no more changes. Like, this is enough. Like, I've had enough change in my life. And what does he say? He says, hey, I'm going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit. And so now at Pentecost, now the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. The church is born, and we're now in a new reality, and that leads us to where we are today. But that's two months. So maybe you find yourself saying, I'm dealing with so much change in, in my life. You may be. But we got nothing on, on, on this period. This is in our lives, no matter if it's good change, bad change, unforeseen change, expected change, nothing like this. And that's good news. Now, our big idea for today is that you see these six things. In every season of change, God is working. I told you I took the whole Bible, all the stories, and looked for any point where there's the most change. I also tried to find a place where God wasn't working. Could I find one? I also tried to find a place where even there's a part in the middle of your Bible. So you got the Old Testament, you got the New Testament. Did you know you have a silent period in the middle? You got a silent period. Even including that silent period, there is not a single place in the Bible where we could not say that people could be faithful to God and trust God. In our lives, there's not a single season where God is not working and where I cannot be faithful and serve him and trust him. Can we agree? So here's our big idea. I like to sometimes say these out loud. I'm going to say it once. We're going to say it, then we're going to get started. Here's our big idea. In every season of change, God is working, and I can participate in his mission in three, two, one. In every season of change, God is working, and I can participate in his mission. Oh, but David, I'm confused. What does that mean, mission? I thought we were talking about change. Theological time. Okay, 
So there's this idea of the mission of God. We say, what is God's mission? Anybody ever have a mission in your life? People say, I have a mission statement. People say, I'm going on a mission. Oh, what are you doing? Why are you running in the supermarket? Well, I'm on a mission. I've got to make sure to get the last loaf of bread, right? Okay, you with me? Well, God has a mission. You can call it the Missio Dei if you want to be. Where's my theological scholars? So there you go. Write that down. You want to sound really smart? There you go. But you can say the mission of God. What is the mission of God? It's when you take the, book, uh, the Bible and say, I want to understand what's going on here. How many stories is the Bible? One story. Who is the hero of the Bible? God is the hero of the Bible. God has a mission. We understand that God has a redemptive historical initiative on behalf of creation. The Bible starts with Genesis, with Eden, with this perfect, wonderful paradise. And what happens? Do, do things go perfectly? Do they go perfectly because God messes up or people mess up? People mess up. And so you have this mission, right, where people are messing up and God is saying, hey, I want to redeem this. I'm planning on redeeming this. I will redeem it. And that is the story of the Bible. If you start in Genesis, within the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and go all the way to Revelation with the new heavens and the new earth, we see the mission of God. People say the Bible is confusing. Simply take the Bible, grab the Bible and say, okay, maybe I don't understand everything here yet. Maybe I don't know every book here yet, but I do know that the Bible shows me God's redemptive historical initiative on behalf of creation, and I'm part of that creation. Can we agree? Amen. So that leads us to those wrong postures again, because we're going to now go through Matthew chapter 21. I invite you to open up your Bible, and if you brought your Bible, we're going to be in the 21st chapter of Matthew. If you didn't, you actually did, because you brought your phone, that's your pocket Bible. You can either open the Bible Gateway in your browser or the YouVersion Bible app. And I'm going to give you a moment to get there as we remind you of these wrong postures. You're going to see that the disciples are going to be passive in this text. Yeah, Jesus, you tell me what to do, but okay, here we go. You're going to see that the Jerusalem people are going to be stuck opposers. I'm not on board. I'm in an uproar. And you're going to see that the religious elites are going to be controlling. This is a narrative, and we're not, if we're not careful, Rome is going to crush us. we got to do something about our Jesus problem. And it's not just in this text. It's if you look at all of the passion, we're in Holy Week now. We begin Holy Week. That's a thing in the church where we've got a couple days where we have an opportunity to remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. That's today. Then a few days, we're going to have Maundy Thursday, where we remember the Last Supper, communion. We took communion today. We have an opportunity to look at that meal. Then we have Good Friday, where we remember, look at all the things that happened to Jesus. Ready? He was what? He was betrayed. He was denied. He was arrested. He was beaten. He bled, I'm sorry, he sweated blood in the garden because it was so upsetting. He had people take his clothes and mock him, and gamble on his clothes. And we had all these different kind of things happen. But what happens? Yes, Jesus dies, but a couple days later, he raises from the dead, and we'll have Easter next Sunday. And so that takes us to our first wrong posture. We start with this. We're going to look in the 21st chapter of Matthew. I'm going to read 
We're going to go a little line by line. We don't always do this, but it's really important to understand these narratives. We have these wonderful stories that we say, wow, it's so familiar. Every Palm Sunday, I hear the story. Every Easter, I hear the resurrection story. But I want us to really dig in. So just like we looked at the Bible and we said, wow, the Bible shows me the mission of God, let's really see what this triumphal entry passage shows us. We'll start in verse 1. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. So that sounds pretty good so far, right? It sounds like everybody's on board. Okay, let's keep going. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. Now pause. So I'm telling you, I'm trashing the disciples and saying they're passive during this. And you can say, David, I disagree with you. They're going to go to some random person they don't know, and they're going to get a donkey and a colt. They've never met the person. They're going to say, the Lord sent me, and they're going to borrow it. That means they're fully bought in and on board. Let me tell you why they're not. Have you ever had your boss or your spouse or your child come and say, this is what's happening and I need you to do this and you need not just think about it, you got to do it. And you did it. But you were kind of passive because you were like, this is what my boss or my spouse or my child or whomever told me to do and I'm just, I'm just doing it. And so we didn't necessarily feel all the anxiety butterflies. You know those job interview butterflies? Do we ever get those in various... You know that, those butterflies in your stomach where we're thinking, oh, I'm about to be interviewed, but we get them in other situations? We don't necessarily feel that because we're like, I'm just following orders. Well, imagine if you had Jesus tell you to do something. Imagine if Jesus just came up and said, hey, you're doing this. And you're like, okay, Lord, here I go. That's not necessarily buying in, right? And, and you can say again, David, this isn't fair. Why are you trashing the disciples? Well, let's look at their actions later. The disciples are going to do what when Jesus is arrested? Peter's going to panic and cut a guy's ear off, and then they're going to scatter. And Mark's gospel tells us that like, all sorts of nonsense happened, right? So the reality is, is that we're seeing a bunch of passive people right now who haven't bought in. Yes, they're going to buy in. Yes, they're going to found the church later when they deal with more change, and they're finally going to get it. But right now, they don't. But let's keep going. Verse 4, this took place... Why did this happen? We always wonder that. The text tells us. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. So the two disciples did as Jesus commanded. Again, we're seeing people who are a bit passive right now. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Again, we're seeing the disciples are kind of passive. They're, they're doing what they're told to do, but we're not seeing any sort of buy-in here. When change comes, this is a new reality. And yes, you and I can say, in every season of change, God is working, and I can participate in his mission. But if we're not careful, we just are in the situation where we're being told what to do, and we do it, but we don't buy in. It's kind of like biology class in ninth or 10th grade, when we copy those notes down from our friend, 
and we turn them in and we get an A on the binder, but we don't know what, what any of it means. And I get the A, but I have, I, I have no buy-in. I can't, I can't help you with your biology homework. We have this in all the different areas of our life. I think of it like this. Where are my restaurant people at who've ever worked at a restaurant? Hey, I, I, I love restaurant people. I worked at a restaurant for a number of years. I was a line cook. You know the problem with being a line cook if we're not careful? Now, hopefully most line cooks weren't like me, but here's what I did. I would show up and my manager would say, David, you're the burger cook today. And I would say, okay, what would you like me to do? He'd tell me and I would do it. Then I would show up another day and, and he'd say, David, you're the fry cook today. And then I would text my parents saying, FYI, uh, please have a change of clothes available for me when I get home because you always say that the fry cook thing is a pungent aroma. And then I would do it. Then uh, they would say, David, you know, you're doing salads today. Do you get my point? I was just kind of passive. I was just kind of doing it. I didn't necessarily have buy-in. Was I there for the best interest of the restaurant? Not necessarily. I was just kind of passive, doing my thing, collecting my paycheck. I was well-liked, but I wasn't like taking initiative and, and doing all this extra stuff. I was just kind of passive. We can have this when we feel change in our lives. We can have a lack of ownership. And so that can happen with a new baby, right? We can be passive. We can say, this situation is all different, and I'm losing sleep, and I've everything, and I, I don't know, I'm just kind of going moment to moment, and I'm surviving, and, and I guess I'll get through it. But our big idea is not, is not survive. Our big idea is in every season of change, if I've got that new baby, it's an amazing gift. What can I do? I can see that God is working. And I can participate in his mission. I can love and serve that baby and see, wow, this is a new part of my family. That happens not just with a new baby. That happens in all parts of our lives with change. If I'm passive, not super helpful. But instead, what I can say is this. Am I willing to trust God when things change? And am I willing to be active Sometimes it's simply that. Sometimes it's, hey, I've, I've been sitting on the sidelines. Hey, put me in, coach. God is coach. Put me in. I'm a part of your mission. So we see that in our first part of our text. Let's keep going because now we get to another group of people who are stuck opposers. The crowd outside of Jerusalem is different than the people inside. This is a big mistake we make when we look at this text. Have you ever heard a pastor get up on Palm Sunday and say this? Can you believe it? The same people who welcomed in Jesus on Sunday turned against him and crucified, called for him to be crucified five days later. So I love everyone who says that. I did a little digging into that. There's a cleric. Um, he's a cleric and an academic and a scholar, New Testament scholar, R.T. France. He's passed away now. He said we have to be really careful about this because there's actually two crowds. There's a crowd outside the city, and their majority... The disciples, the greater disciples, we think of the 12 disciples, there's more. They're primarily like the disciples from Galilee that are there to say, hey, Jesus, we're so excited, we're on board. And then there's a separate crowd. When they go into the city, we're going to see a different crowd, and that crowd is going to be the group of people that are in a panic, and they're primarily the ones who call for Jesus to be crucified in a couple of days. They're two separate crowds. And this is where I get to shout out the ladies. 
hey, ladies, you look great in this part. Here's why. A lot of the Galilean disciples were ladies, and when all of the guys ran away and were too afraid, who showed up at the cross? All the ladies, all the Marys, all of them. Probably more Marys than are written, right? Got all the ladies. All the ladies are there. All the guys are like, they're hiding, they're denying Jesus, they're running away, they're betraying him. And what are the ladies doing? They're all there and they're like, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, you know what? Here's what I can do, right? These are what the ladies are saying. In every season of change, Jesus, you're on the cross. God, you're working. I can participate in your mission. I love you, Jesus. I'm right here with you. So we got two crowds. Let's look at the text. So this in verse 9. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and all the people around him shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Son of David is a way to see Messiah. So that's a kind of a synonym for Messiah. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city, now here's our stuck opposers, ready? Two crowds. You got your people outside there. They're saying, Messiah's here, Son of David, Jesus, we love you. But watch everybody else. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? They asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Do you see how it's two groups? Do you see that it's, you got your people outside the city and your people inside the city. People inside the city default to this is not cool. We're comfortable with life as it is. Whoever feels comfortable with life the way it is? Who here would like life to just kind of, today, let's stay like this for a year, two years, five, 50. They're kind of in this mode. They've accepted, it's not ideal, Rome's here, but they've got their temple, and Rome's here, but they, can, they have their religious leaders, and Rome's here, and they have to pay taxes that they don't want to take, but they're just kind of, life is okay. So they just say, hey, no more change. No more change. Anybody ever feel like this? No more change. Enough change. So I'm just going to oppose. I'm not on board. But can we actually stop the change? If I oppose it, am I really going to make a difference? Now, in the past, I've tried to bring up different things, and I've realized this is a congregation we love New Hampshire. Who loves going to New Hampshire? Okay, I, I knew. Lots of New Hampshire fans. Who loves going to those little brooks, the little babbling streams and brooks? In, those are wonderful, right? Let me tell you about six-year-old David. Six-year-old David was so excited because we had a campsite at Dolly Cop Campground, and we went there. And I went out behind the campsite, and I went to the stream, and I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be like a beaver. What does a beaver do? A beaver stops. What did I do? I grabbed some sticks. And I took my sticks and I put them there. And what happened? Six-year-old David saw the sticks go down the stream. But did I give up? I didn't give up. I grabbed some rocks. A big one, a big boulder. Now, I was really small, so the big boulder was actually a small rock, but I thought it was a big boulder, six-year-old David. So I plop it there. And it stayed. And I thought, wow, I have the ability to stop the stream. So now, for the next hour, I grab mainly rocks, some mud, some sticks, and I stop the stream. And I'm so excited. And what happens eight seconds later? A hole forms and water starts shooting out. Because can I actually stop the stream? 
I can't. The reality is, is that life is always going to change. Change is constant. Therefore, in every season, God is working, God is faithful, and I can be part of his mission. For us, as we're dealing with change in our workplace, we have a number of people right now going through, we're in a time where the workplace and the work economy is changing. Can we agree? There's a lot of advances that are happening way quicker than we thought. There's all sorts of, we won't go down this rabbit hole, there's all sorts of artificial intelligence and automation stuff happening right now. Are you, you, you vibing with me? Okay. So those are happening. Am I going to be able to stop automation by myself? I'm not. If I just am the stuck opposer against automation, I'm just going to be upset and worried about automation. If I'm the stuck opposer against artificial intelligence, am I going to stop it? I'm just going to be really upset about artificial intelligence. Now, what can we do then? Remember when I said the Bible. Grab the Bible. If you've got your Bible with you, grab your Bible. Hold your Bible for a second. If you've got your phone, you're holding the Bible too. That shows you the mission of God, God's redemptive historic work on behalf of creation. God is working. That, that, that book right there shows you in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and eventually there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And remember how I said randomly that I told you that there's a Gallup survey that 55% of Americans believe Jesus is coming again? The reality is, is we know that that's the mission of God. We know that it's going to happen. So here's my thing. When I'm stuck opposing, instead of doing that in my marriage, in my workplace, with my children with my sports team I like. What can I do instead? I can say, hey, God, you're working. I want to be part of your mission. Lord, how can I in a small way contribute and do good here? Because if we're not careful, we, we, this is probably the worst group. We'll look at one more part as we conclude this, this text. Because yeah, we have the people who are passive. And, and let's be honest. If I'm passive or I'm a stuck opposer or I'm controlling... I'm not one of these, right? I can go into each of these modes. I can have times in my life where change happens and I'm passive. I can have times in my life where change happens and I default to not being on board. I'm the stuck opposer. And I can have times in my life where change happens and I try to be controlling. And I, I will argue this is probably the worst of the three. This makes me the most miserable. It can do the most damage. Again, if people look at Christians and say Christians are trying to control everything, what happens? People have a really negative view of Christianity and Jesus. What can I do instead? Well, let's look. So here's what we see, starting in verse 12. We're going to be in the 21st chapter. We're going to wrap up this really important text. Here it is. We love this part, so let's enjoy this win. Ready? Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Let's be honest. We have times in our lives where we wish Jesus would show up and start just like clearing out the money temple, right? We have times where we want, everybody can vibe with this, that we love this mode of Jesus. Jesus, there's nonsense going on. Would you please come into the, into the temple and clear out the money changers. Can we agree? Okay. 
I don't disagree with you. Now, the reality is, is that life's a little more nuanced than that, so I'm sorry. And so therefore, let's look at what actually happens in the text, because this is something we miss. We do this story, and we end right there. And we don't look at what happens immediately after, which I would say is just as important, if not more. Look what happens next. Jesus clears out the nonsense, and now watch what can happen, and watch how people are going to respond to what happens. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple. So there's, there's, a, there's a void created, right? There was all this nonsense happening in the temple. People were doing fraud, and they were, they were doing pay gouging, and all sorts of things, right? Price gouging. And now you have room, so in the temple, all the neediest in the society come, and Jesus is there for them, and he heals them. That sounds amazing, right? Would we like it if the neediest in our community came right here and got healed? We'd like that. Okay, but, but there's people, that's changed, that's different, okay? So we look at that, and we say, wow, that would be amazing. But the group of people in power did not feel like that was amazing. They said, we got to control this narrative. This is getting out of hand. This, we don't want healing happening in the temple. What are you talking about, Jesus? This is unacceptable. Look what happens. The leading priests and teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. But the leaders were indignant. They wanted to control the change. They were like, this is not part of the story. Things have changed too much. Jesus, not cool. What are you doing? This is not part of the deal. We've had so much change. We're not ready for this. Stop it now. But look at what happens. Verse 16. They ask Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? You know, the scriptures that tell us the mission of God, right? God's redemptive, historic, working for creation, okay? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. Then he returned to Bethany. He didn't keep fighting with them. He was like, so you guys trying to control it are never going to get it. Uh, I'm going to return to Bethany and go have a meal and go to bed. And he leaves. Now, we can be like that where something happens. And we say, hey, this isn't part of the plan. I'm not on board with this. We try to control. We say, wow, I need to make sure that we got to do damage control mode. I got to stop this. I only remember, I, I've gone to church my entire life, and I, I'm the son of a pastor who's also the son of a pastor, and I probably have been around for a thousand children's sermons, and I only remember one of them. There's a children's sermon where I got to go up. I don't even remember what it was about. I only remember the illustration. So I'm going to co-opt it. And there was a jar and there was a tennis ball. And I was invited to stick my hand in and grab the tennis ball out of the jar. And I didn't have a big hand like this. Now, everybody grab your hand. Let me see how big your hand is. Who's got the biggest hand in here? We've got some big hands, bigger than mine. I had a smaller hand than this. It was a pretty big jar. And I reached in and grabbed the tennis ball to control it and to pull it out. And what happened? My hand was stuck. And I said, that's okay, hold on. And I changed my hand a little bit. I did it like this, and I pulled it out. And could I? I could not, because what happened? My hand was stuck. And I gave up. And I handed it back to the person doing the children's message, and do you know how they got the ball out? They said, here's how you do it. Open up your hand, David. And I did. And the pastor took 
the jar and poured it out and poured the ball out into my hand. We can't control change, right? We can receive God's plan and we can, we can say, hey, I'm, I'm here to be Jesus' humble servant. We can't control the change. The Pharisees, the leaders, all of them, they're not able to change anything. They simply are getting really upset. They're not able to stop the change. When I'm receiving change and just trying to control what happens, I get really upset. I'm really hard to be around. What else happens? What are some of the byproducts of me, me trying to control change? You, you're not trashing yourself. You're trashing me. If David tries to control the change, what is he? He's going to be really grumpy. Well, I'm, I'm, my wife's laughing. What, what else is going to happen? He's going um, to be really cranky. Um, He's probably going to, oh, I, when I'm frustrated, I bite my lip. And, and now this is for you too, right? Because we all do this, but we'll pick on David. We're going to bite our lip. Uh, maybe we'll kind of fidget a little bit and be really frustrated. But all those byproducts of David trying to control change, is he actually going to be able to? No. I'm not. So now I'm going to turn the tables. goes for each of us, right? When I just try to be controlling of the change, not super helpful. The question instead is, am I willing to trust God when things change? Am I willing to let go, but say, grab my, your Bible for a second. So look, we got a Bible here. Am I willing to say, okay, yes, I cannot control that change. I get it, I get it, I get it. However, however, from the beginning to the end of this, I see God's mission. I see God's plan for creation, redemptive, historical. This isn't a fact book. This is a truth book. There is truth that when I surrender my life to God today, when I say this, in every season of change, God is working and I can be part of his mission, what happens? My life starts to get better. My wife wants to be around me again. My kids want to be around me again. I'm less grumpy to be, deal with at work. Because our wrong postures, let's look at them one more time. Passive. If I just say, oh, there's nothing I can do. Not true. God says I can participate in his mission. If I'm just defaulting to no and saying this isn't cool and I'm going to stand against no matter what, not helpful. God wants me to participate in his mission. And also, if I say, well, there's change, but I can control it, I'll limit its damage, yet we, we can make this work. Not helpful. God wants me, me to be part of his mission. Who gets it right? Not the disciples. Not the Jerusalem people, not the religious elites. Let's look at the right posture. I can thank God for the past and trust him for the future. Who does this? The ladies do this. The ladies in the Bible do this over and over and over. The woman anointed at Bethany takes an alabaster jar, and they say, you're crazy. I can't believe you crack it open. You, we could have given that money to the poor. Can, can you believe she's doing this? What is she doing? She's thanking God for the past, trusting him for the future. Who else does this? All the Marys, all the ladies at the cross. They don't know what's happening. But when Jesus is dead, what do they do with the body? They help get it into the tomb. Then what do we see? Who are the first people that see Jesus resurrected? The ladies. Because, again, they're thanking God for the past, trusting him for the future, saying, hey, Life isn't always going to happen the way I expect it to, but I'm still going to trust God. Now, where do I get this phrase from? This is a helpful thing to end with. I actually am borrowing this phrase from Asbury Seminary and University. You may have heard recently about the outpouring or the Asbury Revival. Have we heard of that? 
You may also know, I'm wearing it as an undershirt, that some of your pastors in this church are either doing master's or doctoral programs through Asbury. One of the reasons we partner with that, because we all have to choose where to get our degrees and where to get our continuing ed, that matters. Where we, who we let teach us matters. The posture of Asbury, it literally says on my shirt that I'm wearing, thanking God for the past, trusting God for the future. That's what I invite you to do in your life. And sometimes I, I ask you, so we're going to invite the elders of the church for it. Sometimes I ask you to be really heavy, and I, I, want you to, I want you to come and be really honest about something. It's a lighter one today. We're going to put this up. If you need to thank God for the past, we just want, we want to invite you forward. There's going to be elders coming forward. And we want to invite you to just come forward and just thank God and say, God, you've been faithful. I really appreciate that. We want to bring you up and do that. If you want to just trust God for the future, not, not reveal all your deepest, darkest secrets today, but just say, hey, God, change is here, and I want to trust you. We'd love to bring you forward. We'd love to pray for you. We don't think that this is a silver bullet. We know that simply when we just say, God, you have a plan, you have a purpose, I can be part of it in every season of change. You're working. I can participate in your mission then we start to be a little less upset with all the change in our lives. And let's stand and sing, and I invite you to come forward again, pray with us, do that brave step.